Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Junker George Show. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and uh, I am terribly sorry that it's taken me this long to get an episode out, but uh, it's my fault. It's just kind of been a weird past six, seven weeks or so. So again, I'm sorry about that, but uh, we're back now. I'm excited to be back, and I hope you are as well. So if you'll remember, the last episode, we covered Sola Gratia. Or grace alone and this is just basically the idea that we do nothing to earn our salvation it is a free gift it is grace that saves us so that's the first in the five episode series on the solas and again that was sola gratia or grace alone now this week we're going to be talking about sola fide and what sola fide translates to is faith alone so if you put these two together we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Sola gratia and sola fide. Now, I have loved the uh, topical studies that we've done in the past, and I think they've served us very well and they've been very fun to do. But for this particular sola, I think that it was better, it would be better for me to take a portion of scripture and exposit it as opposed to the topical studies that we've been doing in the past. So the uh, scripture that I selected was Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. So we're just going to go over these verses, get into them, and uh, find out what they mean. So if you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. If not, you can just follow along. So Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, very simple, very straightforward statement, but yet it's also very profound, and there's a lot that we can get out of it. So, when looking at these verses, I want us to bear something in mind. I want us to bear in mind the state of the modern evangelical church today. And I don't mean to always be bashing on the modern evangelical church. It just seems like it's so easy to do. Um, But I do want us to be bearing that in mind. I want us to be considering the state of the modern evangelical church and especially how they view salvation. And then going off of the modern evangelical church, go to uh, charismatics, go to Pentecostalism, go to the health and wealth preachers, go to all of that. We can look at a hundred different denominations, and I want us to look at their idea of salvation. Because too many times we see salvation is presented as uh, a way to make your life better. Salvation is simply a means to get rich. Salvation is simply a means to get that new car, get that plane that you wanted, get this, get this. But I want us, when we're looking at these verses, to come at them with a better understanding of salvation. Because that's what the five solas really are. They're a succinct summary of how we are saved. So if we're studying them, we should be striving to better understand salvation. So with that said, let's delve into these verses. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 starts off with, For by grace you have been saved. Now I just kind of want us to hang on that first word, for. And just to kind of uh, look at what it means. Now the word 
4, it serves a very important purpose in that it shows an intimate connection between what is about to be said and what has already been said. Now let me explain. When you see the word for, it's indicating that what is about to be said, in this case verses 8 and 9, are explaining what was said in verses 1 through 7. So in order for us to properly understand verses 8 and 9, let's go back and read verses 1 through 7 and grasp a few things from that passage. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, in these seven verses, there are a few things that I want us to note. The first is about the nature of man, the second is about the nature of God, and the third is about the nature of salvation. So looking at the nature of man, we must note that we are dead in our sins. And this has often been called, at least in the American church, total depravity. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We read that in verse 1. In verse 2, we walk according to the course of this world. We follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. In verse 3, we live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are by nature children of wrath. So just looking at these first three verses, we get a very dire view of humanity, as we well should. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not follow after God. We do not seek what is holy. So the first thing that we need to note is that man in his natural state is totally depraved. Every fiber of his being is tainted by sin. There is nothing inherently good within him. So that's the first thing that we must note. So the second thing that I want us to look at has to do with the nature of God. Notice that God is loving, he's rich in mercy, and he is gracious. In verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And then further, he desires to put this grace and mercy and love on display. We read that in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants to put this love and mercy and grace on display. Hence, salvation. God, want, God is loving. God is merciful. God is gracious. And he wants to put that on display. Thus, he saved a people for himself. So then... The thing we need to notice about man's nature is that we are totally depraved. The thing we need to notice about God's nature is that he is loving and merciful and kind and gracious. Now, just a quick side note, 
That's not to negate any of his other qualities, such as his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his jealousy. Because God is those things as well. God is completely just, yet he is able to forgive us for our sins. And we see that in the mystery of the gospel. That God is just, and so therefore he must punish sin. But he is also loving and gracious and kind. So he punished his son on our behalf, that we did not, would not have to pay that penalty. So then, again, just to recap, man in his natural state is totally depraved, dead in his sins and trespasses, and God is gracious, loving, and kind, even while we are dead set against him. Just an interesting illustration, if I may, to somewhat borrow uh, from Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God even now is dangling the sinner above the flames. And it is only his arbitrary will that is keeping that sinner from being plunged into hell. It is nothing but his arbitrary will that keeps that sinner from being plunged into hell. God is suspending him above the flames even now. And even that is an act of mercy that that sinner hasn't been sent to damnation yet that he is being held off even that is an act of mercy but then to piggyback off of that illustration that jonathan edwards gave god is dangling the sinner above the flames even while the sinner does everything in his power to force god to drop him God is dangling the sinner above the flames even while the sinner is doing everything in his power to be dropped. Even while the sinner is betraying God at every turn, with every breath. Even while the sinner is completely set against God, in opposition to God. God still has mercy and grace and says, I'm not going to damn you just yet. I'm going to wait. So it is an act of God's love and mercy and kindness that the sinner hasn't been plunged into hell yet. But note that the sinner is doing everything he can to go there anyway. He is striving for that. He's running there as fast as his legs will carry him. But God is holding him back saying, no, not yet even while that sinner curses God and betrays him with every single breath that he takes. So what we have to notice is that if you are outside of Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and turned to Christ and put your faith in him, you are even now being dangled above the sins and it is above the flame, excuse me. And it is an act of God's grace that you are even hearing this right now that you are even alive to hear this right now. The fact that you haven't died yet and been cast into oblivion is an act of God's mercy because surely his justice would have killed you while you slept. Surely his justice would have killed you before you were able to hear a word of this. So if you are outside of Christ right now, 
do not wait because God's justice demands that sin be paid for and either you will pay for it or Christ will have paid for it those are the only options Either you will burn in hell for all of eternity, or Christ's blood will cover you and you will be made righteous. So if you are outside of Christ right now, come to Christ. I implore you, come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust and hope in Christ. Because God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. If we repent of our sins, put our faith in Jesus Christ. God will welcome us with open arms. He will rejoice to bring us back because he loves to forgive. So if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, God would rejoice to bring you back. God would rejoice to bring you home if you will repent and believe on Jesus Christ. So then the last thing that I want us to know is about the nature of salvation. Now, Paul here is writing to those who have been saved. He is writing to a church. So he is writing to people who have been saved and he gives them a certain amount of comfort and assurance in these verses, even as he is condemning those who are outside of Christ, giving them plenty of reason to be terrified. Even while he's doing that, he's comforting the believer. And let me show you why. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Then verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Now, just note the beauty of those two words right there, in context of what has been said and what's about to be said. The fact that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, the fact that we betray God with every breath, the fact that we follow after Satan, the fact that we live to sin. When we wake up, we think, how might I sin? When we are feeding ourselves, we are sustaining our energy so that we might go on sinning. We live to sin. But even in this state, even while we are dead set against God and betraying him, God, in verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you caught on to that, you'll notice that I emphasized every single past tense word. Were dead. Once walked. Once lived. Were by nature children of wrath. 
saved us, were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, seated us with him. All of these words that are past tense are the ones that I emphasize, and I did it to point this out. Salvation has been done for us. For the believer, salvation is complete, and there's nothing that we need to add on to it. For the believer, salvation is done. It has been given to us. Just as Jesus cried out when he was dying on the cross, it is finished. God Almighty has saved us, and there is nothing that we can do. Even if we needed to, we couldn't. There is nothing that we can do to earn it or to bring it about. We don't do our part, and then God does his. We don't do a little bit, and then God does the rest. No, we are passive in all of this. The only reason we are involved at all is because we are the object which is being acted upon. We are passive. Much like a doctor performs a surgery, the patient is not assisting the doctor, saying, put the stitch there. Make sure you move that artery. Cut here. No, the patient is passive. And much like a patient that is being operated on, we are completely passive. The only reason we are involved in salvation at all is because we are the object upon which is being acted, upon which the act is being done. We are the object that is being acted upon. That is the only reason we are at all involved in salvation because if there were anything else, if there were any other role that we had to fill, we couldn't do it, and thus we wouldn't be a part of salvation. Salvation itself wouldn't even exist. But no, we are simply the object that is being acted upon. So then, the three things that we need to know is that man in his natural state is dead in his sins and trespasses and deserves to burn in hell for all of eternity. Second thing, that God is loving and kind and gracious. And then finally, that salvation is done for us. We are passive. Salvation is done. It has been accomplished. Past tense. Has been done. Has been accomplished. So then with these three things in mind, we can go on to verses 8 and Nine. For by grace you have been saved. Just that statement right there. It goes beautifully with verses 1 through 7. Because it goes to accentuate that. In case our skulls were so thick that we couldn't get it before, he says it plainly here. Paul writes it very plainly here. By grace you have been saved. You do nothing to earn your salvation. In case verses 1 through 7 weren't enough, in case we couldn't see it still, Paul makes it clear. Without, with, there is no doubt in this statement. There is no obscurity. It's not ambiguous. 
it's actually rather unambiguous. You are saved by grace. And by definition, just by defining grace, it's something you didn't earn or work to accomplish. It's grace. It's something you didn't deserve. But more than not deserving it. See, a lot of people will like to use this analogy that grace is like a gift. Salvation is like a gift. It's given to you. You didn't earn it. It was given to you. Now, this is certainly true, and we read similar language uh, in the scriptures. That salvation is the gift of God. In fact, we read it at the end of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But the way some people use this analogy, it doesn't really go the distance. It's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't really cover everything that it should. It's true, we didn't deserve grace, because then by definition it wouldn't be grace. But you have to go a step further. You have to note that in salvation, not only did we not deserve it, we actually worked to earn the opposite. We actually worked to earn hell and damnation. And so it's not just that God didn't give us what we deserve, which would have been to cast us into hell. Rather, it's that God gave us what we earned. Sorry, God gave us the opposite of what we earned. God gave us what we rejected. God gave us, even you could make the case, what we didn't want. In our natural state, we don't want what is holy, but God gave it to us anyway. So looking at this, it's, it's true. Salvation is a gift. It is by grace. It is a gift. And we read that in the scriptures, so I have no problem saying that. But too many people refuse to qualify that statement. You have to qualify that statement by noting that not only is it something we didn't deserve, we actually earned the opposite. We actually earned the right to be cast into hell. And so just to be merely given what we didn't deserve would have been to put us back on neutral ground and say, okay, here, either earn hell or earn heaven. But God gave us actually the opposite of what we deserved. We earned hell, but he gave us heaven. To just kind of put that in common terms, it'd be almost like an employee working and at some point deserving to be fired. Deserving to be fired. And the employer says, I'm going to give you a raise. They, it's pretty much what is going on here. Much like an employee who deserves to be fired but gets a raise, and as absurd as that sounds, I think it's a decent analogy of what's going on here. It sounds absurd, but it's kind of a decent analogy. God is giving us the opposite of what we earned. And I think it's a good thing that I use an analogy that sounds absurd, because I think then we can start to grasp just how absurd salvation sounds. This idea that we earned hell, but God gave us heaven, 
That should be so absurd to us, but we hear it so many times that it's not. In fact, it's just merely language that we've come to memorize and it's lost its meaning to us. So maybe it's a good thing that I use an absurd analogy because then maybe it will restore the wonder of salvation to us. So if an employee works and deserves to be fired, an employee actually tries to be fired and the employer says, I'm going to give you a raise. We all say, that's absurd, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Yes, I agree. Now apply that logic to salvation. We worked to earn hell and yet God gave us heaven. We should all be saying, that's absurd. Why? Why would God do that? We see the answers in verses one. We see the answer in verses one through seven. That God is loving, he is kind, he's gracious. And so this notion of being given the opposite of what we deserve, it sounds absurd and it well should. But it's true. This idea that we've worked to earn something, but have been given the opposite, it's true. We worked to earn the right to be cast into hell. We have earned that. It is our wage. It is the just payment for our actions. And yet God gave us the opposite of that. And that's what should be absurd to us. And that we shouldn't understand, at least not at first. That God could love us so much, us who deserve to be cast into hell, us who anger him every single day with every waking moment. We anger him. We betray him. Every waking moment. Yet God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. And you are going to come into eternal glory. That is both a beautiful and an absurd statement. That God would give us not only what we don't deserve, but the opposite of what we deserve. It's a beautiful statement, but it should blow our minds. So, for by grace you have been saved. Fairly simple, fairly straightforward statement, yet also extremely profound. I can't remember who it was, but one theologian said of, when speaking of the book of John, it's shallow enough that a child could stand up in it, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. And the idea is basically, you can read through the book of John and easily explain it to a child. Yet when you read through the book of John, if you're digging in deep enough, it would be impossible for even the greatest of the great minds to fully comprehend. It would just, it would be impossible. And yet you can read it and explain it to a child in a way that they would understand, at least 
the most important concepts. And I think that logic, that statement, it applies to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a fairly simple, fairly straightforward statement, and there's nothing at all that is ambiguous about that statement. And it's extremely simple to explain it to a child. That you didn't earn salvation, but God gave it to you anyway. And yet when we get into these verses, they can actually be quite profound. And so we see this idea of they're shallow enough for a child to be able to stand in, but deep enough to drown an elephant. So anyway, that was kind of a rant. Sorry about that. But for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, this is where we're getting into the point of the episode that we have been saved through faith, that we are saved by grace through faith, the second of the solas, sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, we can say that quite a bit, but it can still be somewhat difficult to fully comprehend exactly what it means. Because what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that we are saved by grace through faith? And isn't faith our own? And so if faith is our own, doesn't doesn't that mean we've done something and so aren't, isn't it just this one statement completely contradictory? Well, there are a lot of things that we need to note. So the first thing that we need to note is that we are saved by grace. That is very unambiguous. And we see that in verses one through seven as well. We are saved by grace. So that statement alone is going to tell us that any doctrine that tells us we earn salvation or do something to bring about salvation in our own lives is false, woefully false. I would even go so far as to call it heresy. Any doctrine that tells us that we earn salvation is heresy, yes. So then, what exactly is it that this verse means? You have been saved by grace through faith. Because it really does seem like faith is our own. And if faith is our own, is it not a work that we do? So let's then look at this. I'm going to give us three uh, concepts, three arguments for why faith is not a work that we do. Or a work that we have accomplished. Rather, it itself is a means of grace. So the first thing that I want to point out is just very simply the context of this verse. And that's verses 1 through 7, and then of course 9 through 10, but we won't get into those ones. Well, we will get into 9, but just not right now. Um, In verses 1 through 7, it makes it very clear that we cannot choose salvation. Let me explain. If we are dead in our sins and trespasses, following after the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world, If it is true that we live to sin, which it is, then there is no way that we would possibly be able to choose that which is holy. I'm not saying it would be extremely hard. I'm not saying it would be unthinkable. I'm saying it would be physically impossible. Because we are held captive in sin. We are held in bondage to sin. All we want to do is sin, so therefore why would we choose anything else? 
when we are living a life in the darkness, we become afraid of the light. We become terrified of the light because it will expose our evil deeds. And so we shun it, we run from it, we hide from it. So the only way that we could possibly be pulled into salvation is for God to literally come to us and force us to come to the light. Because if left to our own natural desires, we never would. So God has to give us new desires, a longing for that light, a longing for that which is holy. Because in our natural state, we actually despise it. We reject it. We run from it. So God has to come to us where we are and give us new desires. So, that faith, it's true, is given to us. It is our own, but it did not originate with us, and that we'll get into in a moment. But we are not physically able to choose salvation in our natural state, and so therefore anything that brings us to salvation must be done by an outside source. And that someone is God. Verses 1 through 7 make it very clear that we cannot choose that which is good. We can only choose that which is evil. So that's the first thing. That's the first argument that I want to make. We cannot choose that which is good in our natural state because we are in bondage to sin. So the second thing that I want to point out is the rest of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, some people would like to say that that last part, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, only refers to, for by grace you have been saved. And then through faith, that's on its own. That is yours. You have to do that. But that's not how this text reads. When you just read this text with as little bias as possible, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It seems very clear that the latter portion of verse 8 is referring to all of verse 8. This is not your own doing. That seems to be referring to that entire first statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. So just the plain reading of this text seems to indicate that faith is not something that is done for us. In fact, it is given to us. It is a gift. It is given to us. Yes, it is ours. That is something that we must make very clear. It is ours. Faith is our own, but it was given to us. It simply did not originate with us. It did not find its origin in us. We are not its source. God is its source. And he gave it to us. So even faith is actually a result of God's grace in our lives. That God has been gracious enough to give us faith. So then, just to kind of pause right there, one might ask, well, doesn't this mean that God chooses some people? Doesn't this seem to indicate that God lets others perish? 
that God decides who will come to him? Yes. Emphatically, yes. That is a proper understanding of salvation. And we see that all throughout chapter 1 of Ephesians. This idea that God has to give us faith before we, we can come to him, that does indicate that God chooses some and not others. Now, you can take the Arminian interpretation of this text, which is basically that God has given everyone faith, and then it is up to them whether or not they will choose God. But that interpretation doesn't really fit in with the context of chapter 1. So let me just kind of read through a few verses in chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That right there, he chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption, verse 5, to himself as th sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Then we can move on. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These verses make it very clear that we are predestined. And then there are more verses in verse 1, but we won't go over them. And you could also look at Romans chapter 9. These are just kind of the two more popular passages that people, Calvinists, will uh, point to when arguing for predestination. So Romans chapter 9 in my Bible it's entitled God's sovereign choice. Let's look at uh, what Romans chapter 9 has to say. Look at Romans chapter 9 verses starting in verse 19. This is after uh, Paul goes into God saying that Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. This is after Paul goes into uh, a little bit talking about election. Starting in chapter starting in verse nineteen, excuse me, of chapter nine, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, in which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? That statement right there, that God, being a potter, has the right to create some vessels for destruction and some for glory, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Paul makes it very clear here that because we are created by God, he has the right to decide where we will end up in eternity. And 
he is under no obligation to give us a say in the matter. This, I believe, comes from, it stems at least in part from a couple of things. The first is just American pride. Not American pride, sorry, human pride. The first is just human pride. We have this idea that we are owed something simply because we exist. We are humans. And we have this pride. And this pride brings us up. It elevates us to a position higher than we really are. And it brings God down simultaneously. So while we are ascending to a position where we shouldn't be, it's not like God is equally ascending. But rather, he's being brought down. God is infinite. He cannot go any higher than he is. His worth, his majesty, his might, it cannot go any higher than it is. So as we go up, as we finite beings, finite flawed beings, who are worthy of nothing more than to be trampled underfoot, as we elevate ourselves, we are simultaneously bringing God down. And that's that human pride. And we do it to such an extent that we end up switching spots. So now God is the one who deserves nothing more than to be trampled underfoot. And man is infinitely higher, infinitely more worthy. This is our human pride. That slowly we work our way up and bring God down until finally we've switched spots. That is our human pride. And it, it plagues all of humanity. So the second thing that I believe this stems from is just kind of American philosophy. And American philosophy states, which is, this is true, I agree with this, that as human beings, we have certain rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, for example. And it goes on, we have the right to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, um, the freedom to own a firearm, etc., etc., I don't want to get too political here, but these are rights laid out for us in the Constitution. And I agree with these rights. But the problem is that we apply this philosophy of, because I exist, I am owed certain rights. We apply this philosophy to salvation and say, I exist, so therefore I should have certain rights. I am owed certain rights. And if I'm not given them, then I'm being cheated and I'm being dealt with unfairly. But we have to notice that we cannot cry injustice when it comes to salvation, when it comes to our relationship with God. Because if we want to cry injustice, if we want to dare to cry injustice, then we are simply begging to be cast into hell because that is justice. So let me make one thing very clear. It is completely unfair that God saves some and not others. It is completely unfair. Because what would be fair is for God to cast everyone into hell. God does not owe you a chance. You have angered him. You have betrayed him. God does not owe you a choice. The opportunity to choose salvation. He doesn't owe you that. But God has given it to a few. God has given salvation to a select few. 
And that's what we have to note here. It is completely unfair that God saves some and not others. Because what would be totally fair is not that everyone is saved, but rather that everyone is damned to hell. That is completely fair and just and right. Because that is what we deserve. So when we cry injustice towards God, when we say, you have not dealt with me fairly, we better be very sure we know what we want and what we are talking about. Because what we are talking about and what we want when we cry injustice is really what we are saying is, God, you have not treated me with justice. You need to cast me into hell. Because that is justice. So when we cry justice, justice towards God, treat me justly, treat me with fairness. We better not be surprised if we get what we want, but it's not what we expected. So then, this idea that this idea of election, of predestination, it is not fair, true. Because what would be totally fair is to cast everyone into hell. So then I left off looking at context. And that was just context of verses 1 through 7, and then that was also context of looking at uh, verse 8. And this idea, I was disproving this idea that faith is a work that we do. And I kind of paused in the middle of that to talk about predestination. So, looking at um, this next idea, this next proof that faith is not a work that we do. It's kind of an analogy, and maybe it's a poor one, but um, I'll leave that for you to decide. So, let me, let me put it this way. If there's a painter... And he works for years crafting a painting. He's making this painting and he pours blood, sweat, and tears into this painting. And finally it's ready and so he puts it on display for everyone to see. No one would look at that painting and say, wow, the brush did a great job with that. That's absurd. That's an absurd statement. No one would say that. And we all know that. It's absurd to say, oh, the brush did a good job painting because the brush, it, it can't do anything. It's simply the tool. It's simply a tool that was used. It was a tool that was used to bring about an end goal. The brush didn't do anything. And we know this is an absurd thought because if we laid paint and a canvas and a brush all out, nothing would happen. Until someone picks up the brush, dips it in the paint, and strokes it across the canvas, nothing is going to happen because that painting cannot paint itself. That brush cannot paint a painting. But it's the same idea. We tend to make an exception for faith, for our salvation, because we want so badly to have something to do with it, to have earned it, to have done something. We want so badly for it to be a, 
the result of works. That we look at faith, which is the one thing that we might be able to misconstrue and twist so that it makes it look like we did it. It's the one thing. And we say, see, I did it. I did that. But we read in these verses that faith is simply a tool. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the tool that was given to us. It's not what saves us because we are saved by grace. Much as a painter uses a paintbrush to create a painting, grace uses faith to bring about salvation. So we can't look at faith and say, that is something that we've done. It's a work. Because it's simply a tool that is used to bring about an end goal. It's nothing else. So then, I think I'm almost at like the 45 minute mark, somewhere around there. Um, so I'm going to try and make this quick, get uh, through this. We're almost done, I promise. Just to kind of give you guys some... Uh, assurance on this matter. I want to I show you guys that I'm not the first person to interpret these verses this way. Not by any means. Chapter 11, paragraph 1 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of the Faith, of Faith reads, Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death. For their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith. Here it is which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. I am not the first person to say that faith is given to us. I am not the first person to say that faith is not a work we do. In fact, saying that faith was a gift was the common understanding of Scripture for quite a long time. It's how 2,000 years of church history has interpreted the scriptures. That faith is given to us. So then, really quickly moving on. Verse 9. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We're going to make this very quick. Here we see Paul very clearly saying what has been implied throughout verses 1 through 8. In case, again, our skulls were too thick for this information to get through, Paul makes it very, very clear. He tells us outright, it is not a result of works. And why is it not a result of works? Well, one, because we couldn't do it, but Paul gives us a different reason here. And it's because we have a natural tendency to boast. And we will want to say, look, I did something. I was better than you, and I did something. It would be nothing more than a means to feed our ego. 
But Paul says it is not a result of works so that you may not boast. He takes a swing at the one problem that every single human being deals with, and that's pride. And I won't go into how we deal with all of that. I won't go into all of that. It's a different conversation. It's a little bit longer than we have. But he takes a swing at the one thing that every single human being deals with, and that's pride. And he says here, you cannot boast in your salvation because you didn't do it. Now, really quickly, I just want us to note something in verses 8 and 9, just kind of overall. For by grace you have been saved. Note here what Paul says. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Notice how he emphasizes the fact that salvation is not our own doing. That threefold repetition. It's a way of emphasizing this idea. It's a way of emphasizing this idea that salvation is not our own doing. It is a gift. And then look at the way he changes the way he says it. When learning to give speeches or learning to give sermons or Bible studies or anything like that, one of the things you will be told is that you should change the way you say something if you want to emphasize it. For example, if I want to make a point, I should say it in a positive way. For example, let's say that I want to make a point that coffee is a great drink. I can say it in a positive manner. Coffee is a great drink. And then I can switch it to a negative statement. Say my favorite drink is coffee. I could say no drink is better than coffee. I've said it two different ways and it's a way of emphasizing it and it's a way of driving it home. It's a way of making people remember it. Paul switches three times. He doesn't say it twice, he says it three times, and each time is different. This is not your own doing. That's first, positive assertion. Not your own doing. Sorry, negative. Negative statement. That's a negative statement. Negative statement. This is not your own doing. Then he switches to positive assertion. It is the gift of God. And then he switches back to negative statement. Not a result of works. Each time he says it differently. And it's a way of driving this point home. That is not a result of works. It's not something you did. It's not something you do. Rather, to me, it is a result of grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Junker George Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please like comment subscribe share this with friends and family all of that would be greatly appreciated if you have any questions comments concerns anything like that feel free to email me at reforming till we die at gmail.com i would love to hear from you if you have any questions anything like that i would absolutely love to hear from you and i will do my best to respond to them heck maybe we'll do an entire episode on just questions and comments that come 
in. So may God bless the remainder of your week, and we will be back next time with an episode on Solus Christus. We've seen that we are saved by grace through faith. Next week, we're going to see that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. May God bless you.